Let us pray once again. Jesus, you are indeed fair than 10,000, more beautiful and pure than anything in this whole universe. We now come to you asking for your blessing through your spirit to open our eyes, to break the fallow ground, to accomplish your work through your word. We pray, O oh God, for your presence, your guidance upon my lips. Help us, O oh Lord, search our hearts, conform us to your image. And be with us even as we come to this, this text, this particular challenging text, Lord, and help us to navigate it well, especially, Lord, for our lives. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Friends, grace, by definition, grace is getting what we do not deserve. Whereas justice is getting what we do deserve. However, mercy is a step even further. It's not getting what we do actually deserve. The definition of mercy is receiving kindness and compassion when we actually deserve punishment. To that we add the word compassion. Compassio. To actually feel with someone. Empathizing with them even in the midst of the shame they face because of their sin. But why? Why should we be characterized by mercy and compassion? Because friends, were it not for the compassion God had upon us, none of us would be able to stand. See, mercy appears to be unjust only if we forget the price that made mercy possible. By the very one who showed mercy upon us, Jesus Christ. Just as he did in this story before our eyes of John chapter 8, the woman caught in adultery. We begin John chapter 8. We left uh, the ministry in Galilee last Sunday. You remember in the past weeks as we have gone through the gospel of John, Jesus had various debates with the Jewish leaders, which were interrupted by a series of miracles that made his message and his person more and more controversial. Next Sunday, we'll see uh, Jesus in this point of the gospel will declare to be the light of the world. We'll see that and expand that on next Sunday. Yet Jesus faces at this uh, point and juncture what we already identified as an increasing conflict with the spiritual darkness. That if you are light, you enter in conflict with darkness. Spiritual darkness, particularly what we see here in the story, the setup, it is a setup, it is a trap organized by the religious leaders. The religious leaders notice that Jesus is becoming more and more popular and they must stop him. But how are they going to stop him? They cannot simply go and uh, arrest him and put him to death and the, the crowds uh, will, will come after us. So what do we do? How are we going to stop him? Well, they come up with some tricks that uh, seek to trap Jesus in his words. 
See how the opposition from these religious authorities mounting toward Jesus. And now we come to this story of chapter 8, which, by the way, is not found in anywhere else in Scripture. It is, uh, remains for us, at face value, one of the most powerful dramas of sin, forgiveness, mercy, and compassion. However, it is a very controversial passage. All sort of weird theories around this passage have is, has been argued. For example, that this story somehow wrongly prom- promotes sexual promiscuity, that somehow adultery is not such a big deal, which is not the case at all. I mean, I know in U.S., several states in U.S. used to have, or at least they have in their books, the death penalty against adultery. It's no longer practice, but it used to be a time where it was seen as such a serious sin that indeed that was required. And I think uh, it was actually not necessarily wrong. A, a, a deterrent against society now going to the opposite direction where we see today adultery, it's become normalized. And other sexual sins in our society are becoming normalized. So this passage, some things that Jesus here is condoning sin, which, or worse, they're saying out of this text that that there's a view of mercy now that now does away with divine justice. Nothing could be further from the truth. I want you to see that. And there's a second problem with this text that is, there's a textual issue on whether this entire story from verse 53 of chapter 7 all the way to verse 11 of chapter 8 it's whether it's actually part of Scripture at all. Perhaps your Bible has it brackets under some brackets. You see a bracket at the beginning of 53 and a bracket at the end of verse 11. Let me explain. I usually don't do that, but in this type of sermon we have to do it because this is uh, uh, significant. Uh, some even put the entirety of these verses 1 to 11 in their footnotes. They make a footnote. And uh, because what is the reason? Uh, it is absent from all the earliest manuscripts, okay? All the ancient, most ancient, reliable manuscripts don't include this passage. Or worse, they place this passage elsewhere in John, sometimes even in Luke. Whereas the majority, for five centuries, between the, the, the writing of the gospel and, and, the, and the, uh, the fifth century, there's no trace of these verses. Even the earliest church fathers always skip this story. There's been some discussion even about the vocabulary of the, uh, that is used in these uh, verses. That seems to be using a lot of terminology that you don't find in the rest of the Gospel of John. And, and, and also, if you take verse 52 and uh, verse 12, verse 52 of chapter 7 and verse 12 of chapter 8, there is a natural flow of the text without this parenthetical story. So what I want to point out that the evidence overwhelmingly, it doesn't happen that often, but overwhelmingly here points to the fact that this story was not in the original Gospel of John. So that tells you we must approach this story with caution. We don't want to make two dogmatic statements from one passage which is questioned by evidence. And so the question, preacher, should you then skip this and preach the next verses? Uh, some Christians wants to do that, do away it all together. However, my, 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 my position here is that I w- while it might not have been part of the authentic material of John, it might well have happened. Okay, Several scholars are saying that it might well have happened. 
And in fact, the majority of manuscripts, although they are late in time, still have it and make it relevant to at least mention this passage without at the same time give an excessive bearing to the story. That, that goes for other parts of scripture. Whenever you, uh, you, you don't build a, your certainty on just one verse to then build an entire doctrine in the Bible. Uh, and uh, we are, uh, however, upholding the inerrancy and infallibility of the scripture. However, we want to realize that in times like the few cases in the New Testament, we must ask whether it was part of the original gospel. So I want to clarify also that there's nothing untrue in this story. That Jesus' relationship with the sinner and the self-righteous judges to the woman is consistent, com completely consistent with the Savior's character as found elsewhere in the Gospels. What I want you to see is that nowhere this passage undermines any doctrine, nor does it allow us to build the picture of a liberal Jesus that now is fine with sin, particularly adultery. This story, friends, is far from making a light of the seventh commandment. Thou shalt commit no adultery. Some have speculated whether the woman that is in the story is actually Mary Magdalene, uh, you, you, we, we know from the other parts of the New Testament that she was delivered from seven demons. And later she will follow Jesus all the way to the cross. There's no evidence of that from this story of any other parts of the New Testament. But definitely this story, whoever the woman is, should have led this woman not, not only to be saved, but also to follow Jesus among the other women that followed Jesus. And it remains for us a helpful picture of the compassion and the mercy and the redemption that sinners can find in Christ. And it causes us to reflect those same things in the way we deal with others. That we avoid the trap of self-righteousness, of empty religion. So focus on boasting in your religious performance. I mean, these people went to the temple right there where the episode takes place every week. They were comparing themselves, the Pharisees, with others. I'm not adulterous like others. They were hypocritically addressing other people's fault, but they were not looking at their own sin. The fact that they were adulterous at heart. They were relying on themselves, the Pharisees. They said, we, we, we don't need Jesus, we hate Jesus, and in fact, we don't like him. And they were hostile to God's grace because, in one sense, they had no need of grace. They have to earn the favor of God, and therefore, the woman is a sinner, and we are not. And so all the other qualities that the Pharisees displayed in the story shows us that there's a lesson for us. Verse 1 and 2, let us look at the context. In harmony with the story of John, if we take that as part of that original uh, story, but as I told you, there's questions about it. We are in Jerusalem. Jesus gave this speech in the temple last time. You remember that, that controversial speech, right? Everyone left and went to their own house. However, Jesus doesn't have a house to go to. You remember in his birth, he, he went to Bethlehem. He had to be born in a manger because there was no room. This is the same situation. So he spends the night in the Mount of Olives, just outside of Jerusalem. That will become an accustomed meeting place for the disciples of Jesus while they're in Jerusalem, especially all the way to his death, we'll see in, uh, in the future. But the next day, he goes back to the temple and he starts teaching. But before he teaches what we'll see next time, I am the light of the world... There's a legal case that Jesus is called to solve by the end of the opponents of Jesus, the Pharisees. 
And what do we learn from this response of Jesus to the, to the challenge, to this legal case? We learn something that Jesus' forgiveness and call to repentance, mind you, forgiveness, repentance, we cannot separate the two. That forgiveness of Jesus and his call to repentance toward the sinful woman are a perfect picture of when the gospel truly gives life, whereas the law in and of itself, that was the problem of the Pharisees. They were going to the law seeking to uh, and failing to obey truly the word of the law without the grace of God, then they cannot have forgiveness and repentance. The law can only condemn. The law can only expose sin. The law can only kill ultimately the sinner under the weight of the law. But the perfect picture of the gospel is that Christ forgives and calls this woman to repent. Let us look at the sentence of the woman in your note there, verse 3 to 6. What is the sentence? This woman has sinned and she must die for her sin according to the law. The Pharisees bring this sentence supported by evidence. But I want you to see that their evidence is questionable, okay? The scribes and Pharisees are gathering toward uh, Jesus. Both groups are coming together. The scribes are the expert in the, mo the law of Moses. The Pharisees were devoting their entire lives to observe every minuscule part of the law. So all the religious leaders are coming together to put a legal case before Jesus. So what do they do? They bring a woman. Which, remember, I, I mentioned this in our evening service as we went through Ruth. Women back in, in this time were defenseless category. Their opinion was not so valued in a court case. They, and they, without a man, were, they were unable to sustain themselves. They, they are not considered a reliable witness. And here we have a trial. And they, and they say she had been taken or caught in adultery. She has been found committing a sex crime. Isn't it interesting? Whenever we open TV and some celebrity, they want to incriminate celebrities or politicians, they always go toward finding possible faults related to sexual allegations. And when the media uh, do that, they're not concerned about the immorality of the act. They're trying to, try to find something to destroy the reputation of that person because they don't like that person. And friends, that's exactly what the Pharisees are doing here. They just want to get rid of Jesus. And let me, let me point how this trial is not a trial. First of all, it's strange that they bring her alone. Her husband is not there. Old Testament law required that the man committing adultery and also the husband who had been wronged be brought on trial. And this therefore doesn't look like a proper trial. Because both parties are guilty and they are subject to death penalty under the Old Testament law. Old Testament law also required a series of clear evidence to protect the woman from false accusation. After all, it takes two people to commit adultery. But where are they? Instead, no. They disregard the law. They claim to observe that law. And therefore, this trial is not lawful. They're just using her, as we'll see in coming verse, to trap Jesus, to bring her alone. And some have even speculated that this woman is a prostitute by profession. But friends, adultery in this case presupposes the breaking of the marriage vow. So it's obvious that this is a woman that in one act of unfaithfulness toward her husband is adulterous. So they sit her in their midst. What I want you to see is the shame. 
I know R.C. Sproul, when he speaks about this, he speaks about two uh, Presbyterian ministers who went to a conference. They went uh, to have a shower. They forgot to bring their clothes in the elevator. The elevator all of a sudden opens into the lobby, and they're naked in front of everyone. That is how the woman feels right now. We have to realize the depth of the shame of this woman. There she stands, probably in the temple, violently thrown into the middle, defenseless, without words, embarrassed in front of the staring crowd. Can you imagine? In plain sight. And then they say to Jesus in front of all the crowd in the temple, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the very act of adultery. They're saying, we have evidence. But they don't bring those evidence. And they're saying... This is undeniable. Trust us. She's deadly guilty. They want to emphasize the sin so that the response of Jesus may trap him in his word. That is their, their purpose. Verse 5 to 6 shows us that. That while they claim this is a lawful sentence, it is questionable. Verse 5. Here's what we're supposed to do, Jesus. Moses, the one we claim to follow, we are his disciples, in his law commanded us to stone such woman, to kill her. But what do you say? What do you got to say about this? What is your sentence? Remember, they want him to get in trouble because of his words. They want to find something to accuse him, to discredit him in front of the crowds of followers. So the answer doesn't matter. And verse 6, it's the, the comments for us, the motive behind this setup. They were tempting him, testing him. So they might have something to bring charges against him, to accuse him. You see, the motive, the purpose of the question is not to fulfill the demands of justice, but it's one of their traps, one of their manipulations, which often the religious leaders will try on Jesus, like, should we pay taxes to Caesar? Trap question. Is it lawful to divorce? We saw in past weeks. Give us a sign. Or what is the greatest commandment? All of these questions were meant to entangle Jesus. Just like in a court case or a job interview or a romantic relationship. All of those cases have a trap question. So that if you answer the, wrong, the question wrongly, you're done. You don't get married, you go to jail, you lose the job. So these questions are loaded. And the point is the motive in asking those questions are not pure. They want to create a case to get rid of Jesus. To use against him, to incriminate him. They have really no concern for the woman, nor for the law that they claim to obey. And the fact that the, the fact that they choose this type of trick tells you their opinion of Jesus. He's an easygoing, loose guy, tolerates sins, and they just need one case to prove it. But how is Jesus going to answer? That is the question. Here's the double trap. If he stones her, then he'll no longer be a friend of sinners. He will be considered severe and vindic vindicative. He's going to get in trouble also with Rome because Rome doesn't authorize Jewish people to kill people by this time. But if he does forgive her, he'll be considered a breaker of the law of Moses. He will go against Judaism. He will discredit himself from before the crowds. And what is Jesus doing in the meantime? Notice, he's completely unconcerned. Instead of answering that question, he stooped down, he bends and writes on the ground. Now we don't know what he wrote, perhaps... He's writing down the accusation. Deuteronomy 22 verse 22 says, Both men who had sex with the woman and the woman must die. Or maybe he's uh, thinking of a counter-accusation against the Jewish leader leaders. We do not know. 
But look, look that, that scene once again. You have this dusty, dirty ground which has been cursed by the fall. And now the Creator, Jesus Christ, writes with His own finger. Some have thought perhaps Jesus was writing the actual law on the ground. Remember, the Ten Commandments, including thou shalt not commit adultery, had been written in front of Moses by the finger of God. And it was God who wrote such law with His own finger. And now God's finger incarnate, God in the flesh, stands before them. He just declared to them, remember weeks ago, that He is equal with God. He authored and wrote the very law in question. So He, and not them, has authority to enact it as He pleases. However, as we know from the Bible, the law is unable to give life in and of itself. And so Jesus writing in it with his own finger on the ground stands also as a picture of how the law, the letter of the law kills. You know what Paul says, I, I, have no, no, I would have not known sin apart from the law. And when the law came, I died. But it doesn't end there, does it? That the law is still good. Why? Because it leads us to the solution to what we see next. Christ, he fulfills the law perfectly. And he has now come to do what the law could not do, to give life to the guilty sinner through his perfect obedience on our behalf. You see, he kept the law that he himself wrote perfectly in our place. Think about it. Jesus Christ never had a lustful thought. He remained single all of his life and he never committed adultery. And his response here doesn't mean that Jesus goes against the law. No, he fulfills it. He observes the law himself. And then he will bring the curse of the law on the cross in behalf of this woman. Some manuscripts even add, as he did not hear. Jesus writes on the ground, he remains silent, implies that he's not moved by any of their schemes. I mean, he knows their motives. He listens from the back of his mind, but intentionally ignores them, just like he would do in front of King Herod later in the gospel. Why? Because there are certain people that come to Jesus with all the wrong motives, only to find him silent, only to find him deaf to their prayers. Think of Luther, Martin Luther's protector. It came the time for the Pope to accuse Luther, and the protector says, What are you going to do now? Do we end him to Rome? Or what are we going to do? Are we gonna, how are we going to respond to the Pope? And it's like, well, sometimes the best response is to just stay silent. Say nothing. See what happened. And that was the ignoring that is happening in our text. I'm sure all of us, at some times in our Christian life, have, have to confront people of this sort, the Pharisees. The fruits of bad religion and the hurt that it causes. I'm not referring to, by the way, a, a church where a member is adulterous and the uh, and the church leaders discipline them. Friends, to fail to do that is failing to be a healthy church. It will be cruel not to address sin. That is not what's going on here. It will not be merciful to do that. I'm referring here to churches and professing Christians who, like the Pharisees, that think about doing good works or obeying the law. They can earn and merit salvation. And they claim to be devout, but they are heartlessly condemning others, while at the same time, their lives are full of idolatry. Deception, compromises, and hypocrisies. There's a song, a country song that goes around now that is called Fire and Brimstone. And it's uh, very bad theology I'm, I'm just mentioning because it mentions this passage, okay? 
Indeed, there is a danger of self-righteousness among professing Christians and uh, to our, this unbelieving visitor to their church. However, the man in the song is, as self, is no less self-righteous than the professing Christians. I mean, he never went to church. He never read the Bible. He knows his sinful lifestyle will lead him to hell. And he gets mad at churchgoers because he feels somehow judged. I mean, the issue there is not necessarily pointing sin or fire and brimstone. The, the issue is when the church forgets the gospel solution, that the grace and forgiveness and the emptying of any self-righteousness, like in the story of, of, the, of the Pharisees, where they have no grace, no compassion, no humility toward those who are not like them. I realize we all have remaining of self-righteousness, obviously. Concerning the most in Reform Camp is, if we're not careful, sometimes we risk to emphasize the truth at the expense of love. We have grace in our lips, but not in the way we deal with others. And so may God open our eyes to the need of having a, a balance between those two. Yes, we can have points of doctrines right. We can stick to the message of the Bible. But we still want to act lovingly and graciously toward others. Sometimes even people who might not have all the points of theology, like Armenians, may be found to be loving. And the risk is, again, to instead show no love and what do we do when we however are confronted by this self-righteousness see the risk is to act in kind he's being self-righteous i'm going to be self-righteous instead jesus is ignoring it all together he doesn't make it as important as they want him to think it is just like nehemiah ignored the constant threats by those who wanted the work of the temple to to stop the silence is also intended to allow time so that the accusers reflect on what they're doing as the question is only driven by jealousy and hate. Charles Spurgeon has this to say about self-righteousness. Beware of self-righteousness. The black devil of licentiousness destroys his hundreds, but the white devil of self-righteousness destroys his thousands. That you can be a religious man, you can seek to uphold God's word, you think to uphold righteousness, you pursue details of obedience, but you're still unfaithful. Unjust and most importantly, unmerciful. Like the servant forgiven, then, then Goa beats the other servant. That's the description of the accusers, like a religious police. They just want to trap a person that seems to bend the distorted, man-made understanding of the law. That's why the word Pharisee today became associated with self-righteousness. That your good works are a pre prerequisite for salvation. And they didn't take the words of Jesus of judging according to appearances that we saw weeks ago. Later in John 12, there is another woman. She anoints Jesus, and, and Judas Iscariot starts to judge that anointing in the name of charity. But actually, Judas Iscariot has a different motive. He loves money, he's a thief, helps himself out of the disciples' money bag. Self-righteousness again. So the Pharisees here think that Jesus is the sinner, and they are the righteous one. The whole motive of these accusers is impure, is driven by manipulation. I mean, they're swift in judging those who commit blatant sins, but they consider them worse than theirs. I'm not an adulterer, but they are not as swift to self-examine their own huge hypocrisies. I mean, you contrast Jesus, his innocence, his message, with all their craftiness to the point that they want to kill him. The pure, unjustified hatred toward the innocent Jesus but now he's, he's breaking the silence. And in our second point, verse 7 to 9, 
he sends an exoneration. And by his response to the situation, he's showing something. That all have sinned and fall short of God's glory. And therefore are unable to keep the law on their own without the grace of God, with the assistance of God's grace. Ultimately, Jesus is telling them that no one can stone her. At this point, the religious leaders continue to press Jesus for an answer. So Jesus now stands up. And in all of his wisdom, he avoids the trap once again. He testifies how in one sentence he both corrects their misunderstanding of the purpose of the law, but he also brings salvation to her to actually solve the issue of her sin once and for all. See that wisdom. He who is without sin, let him be the first to throw the stone. He among the accusers who is sinless, guiltless. When he, when he says that he's, he's searching their hearts, Doubtly one or more of these men may be as well guilty of the same crime as the woman. But this is more than sexual sin. Any sin. You heard of guilt by association. If a police officer comes into a uh, you know, midnight party and he finds all these teenagers. They're all under 21. He's going to accuse them all by guilt of association. Friends, there is a sense in which because we all descend from Adam, we have this guilt of association. We are all sharer in the sin of Adam. And the irony here in our text is the only one who is without sin is the one who is making the claim. Jesus, he has the right to kill her. But he doesn't. Let him be the first to throw a stone at her. Like elsewhere, you, you, got, you got to admire the wisdom of Jesus in the impeccable answer. Better wisdom than Solomon. Remember when he commanded the competing woman to split the baby in half. And the, 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 the answers of Jesus here is wise. Why? Because first, he doesn't deny that she deserves the punishment. But at the same time, he questions their moral competence of the accusers. He's saying, you can go ahead and judge the sin only if you never committed any sin. That's why I told you weeks ago, Romans 2, that we have no excuse, every one of us who judge for in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself. Why? Because you, ju you judge practice the very same thing. So the issue is not judging. The issue is that adultery starts in the heart. So that if you look with lust, you have already committed adultery. So the, the commandment of God is far deeper than the Pharisees really realized. Far broader than even the sexual sin. You, you, you engage in your life, friend, with different kind of lovers and idols in your life that pulls you away from loving God above all else. You are guilty of that crime. You cheat God. The point here is that they are just as sinful and unrepentant as the woman. Verse 8. After, after saying this, Jesus goes back to do what he was doing before. This mysterious writing on the ground. From silence to silencing them, back to silence. He ignores them again. It's clear that he knows no one will stone her because they all are sinners. And that should have led every listener to realize something. Something that Blaise Pascal says. God is none other than the Savior of our wretchedness. So we can only know God well by knowing our iniquities. Those who have known God without knowing their wretchedness have not glorified God, but have only glorified themselves. That is the issue of the Pharisee. In other words, the problems with the Pharisees is not just that they address sin. 
Adultery remains indeed a heinous sin, and it must be dealt with. The issue is their pride, their bad motives, their disregard toward applying the same measure to themselves first. Of the measure, they apply to others. See, we should not accuse others of unless we search our hearts, which doesn't mean now we, we refrain from all, all judgment. There's this refrain in our culture. It's like, God is my judge. It's like, that's wrong. It's like, God is not saying, you know, there, there's a measure in which we need that correction. But we must make sure that our motives and lives are pure. We look at the log in our eyes before we remove the speck. We come to judge a case with clean hands first. And the, the reality that often gets in the way that we cannot do this perfectly. None of us has ultimate clean hands. We are all sinners. The grounding of our judging therefore others is removed if you compare everything to the perfect standard of the purity of God. The sinless judge of God. Of Jesus Christ which doesn't mean as I said that we refrain from it but we seek to do that with immense awareness the religious leaders should have kept that in mind that they got serious sin in their lives too even more serious than the woman think about it in the dark they're trying to trick Jesus they want to accuse him they want to kill him or worse they have this craftiness but what happened next in our story everyone leaves verse 9 at this point, those who heard this, who were, by the way, caught off guard, they failed to trap Jesus. They did not expect the wise answer. They got nothing to reply. They don't know what to do next. And some manuscripts even says, convicted in their own conscience, accused by their own conscience. That is the power of conscience when it's awakened from its blindness and realizes its own hypocrisy. They have now condemned themselves. Jesus' words brought everyone to recognize their wrongdoing first. They're convinced to be adulterous already in their hearts. So they went out one by one. Now, they realized that they should all have been worthy of death according to the true purpose of the law. Once they understand how perfect such law is. And that everyone falls short in observing it. They leave. They leave. The self-righteous as we know, are always upset. They condemn others and they never apologize. And they just leave. They leave because perhaps in their self-righteousness, they have also could not bear the sight of Jesus forgiving and granting grace to this woman. And they begin by the oldest to the, the, the younger. The one who sinned since a longer time and the one who was older, also more mature and void of that temper of the youthful self-righteousness. And Jesus was left alone. I like what dear Carson has to say here. Those who had come to shame Jesus now leave in shame. In other words, while this text is not suggesting the suspension of judgment, as we said, we want to engage in it with a deep awareness that we are all sinners. And I realize there will be time that we will all fail. Even I as a pastor and you know, as a church, we pray that we will do it right. But we are not, we are not perfect. We should keep in mind the more we live, the more we sin. Sometimes we take an honest look at our lives. We recognize our sinful nature first. And then we seek to help others. Just like Galatians 6 says, verse 1. Brothers and sisters, if someone is caught in a sin, you who live by the Spirit, there's the grounding of our obedience, we live by the Spirit, should restore that person gently. But watch yourself or you also may be tempted. So remember that compassion, forgiveness, restoration are far more important to God than the strict passing of that measure 
for the person who is caught in sin of judgment. Although it's necessary correction. Because look, Jesus was sinless and he, he had every right to stone, but he didn't. And that should make us think. I realize that there's something greater than carrying out justice. What is it? To see sinners repent. To see sinners change, converted, brought from condemnation to salvation. Realizing that mercy triumphs over judgment. That there's, there's such a thing as freedom from sin that is result not of the threat of the law that only puts you there in the corner of slavery, but of forgiveness and love from God through His Spirit that then leads to our third point. Restoration. Verse 10 to 11. That the woman is now forgiven. But there's something else that goes together with forgiveness, okay? She must sin no more. And that is the, the, the way of the gospel. The faith and repentance. Forgiveness, reconciliation, and turning away from sin are intertwined together. She's forgiven, but she's also urged to repent. Verse 10 and 11. At this point, Jesus has finished writing on the ground, and he sees the woman still there. She has not left. I mean, think about it. He saved her life after all. Imagine her in the dust there and he's stretching out a hand in that dusty ground, reaching for Jesus. And we don't know for sure, but Jesus knows the heart of people. Maybe he has perceived all along the sorrow that she had for her sin. Perhaps he has perceived the repentant attitude in this woman. And now he asks this question. He says, woman, where are those accusers? No one condemned you? No one passed this sentence upon you? He knows that the answer is no, but he wants her to say it out of her own lips so that she may internalize the, the immense and tremendous gift of salvation that she is receiving. Yes, she, she was a guilty sinner. There in the true temple of God, Jesus Christ, the true temple, he, she finds help in the mercy seat of Christ because the Lamb of God offers sacrifice and he sacrifices life for her sin. Verse 11, she replies, no one, Lord. The fact that she, she says, Lord, tells you that something is at work here. She recognizes of who Jesus is. And, and, and Jesus tells us, neither do I condemn you. I don't press any more charge. Though I am the, one, the only one on earth that should. It's like if a judge, after dismissing the jury and the prosecutors for being biased... He then now turns toward the guilty party and he still grants them acquittal in court. The heavenly judge does that with this gesture of compassion, with this act of mercy, with this measure of kindness, with this depth of grace. But because this is possible, not because Jesus is somehow breaking the law or he's above the law. Holy broke was the man-made plot of the Pharisees. Instead, remember, Jesus keeps the law. In the place of this woman. In your place. And soon one day he will soon die upon the cross. He will bear the curse of the law against her and her sin in her place. It's almost as if Jesus is looking ahead here already to what he will do to solve the problem. In a way that makes mercy and justice kiss each other. Yes, she was still a sinner. And whilst she was still a sinner, Christ died for her. That Jesus now release or redeem her from the death that the law brought on her. Justly, just death because of her sin. Her shame, her brokenness, her addiction, 
Whatever it is, there is a sense that the reason is we don't stone anymore. We don't go around stoning people. Why? Because we're in the new covenant. And that new covenant, other than the fact that this was part of the civic law of the Old Testament, is that Jesus fulfills the law. In the sense that the death of the Son of God was the just condemnation, the just stoning for our adulteries. That Christ will die on Calvary even for adulterous people also. We have no reason to think that these encounters that Jesus has in this gospel are isolated. I can see this adulterous woman forgiven. Now he, she lives the life of sin and follows Jesus all the way to the cross among the other women. They're crying under the cross. But now her cry is different. Her tears now come to awareness of the price of her forgiveness. The Savior had to pay for a sin of adultery. The blood spilled on the ground that day. The, the nails that pierced our Savior was the just payment to satisfy the wrath of God for her sin of adultery. However, friends, that redemption does not leave anyone, not even this woman, in their adulteries. Friends, there's something that we must be extremely careful when we look at this story. And it's the ending of this story. That repentance goes hand in hand with her forgiveness. And if I emphasize this, it's not because of self-righteousness. Repentance is not a work. Repentance is something that God grants you graciously from His Spirit. And it takes place, however, in every true conversion. It is not a perfect repentance. It is not a person that now is completely sanctified, but is a true Work on sanctification of God, divine, brought in your life. Friends, God rejoices over sinners who repent. Not over sinners who seek to put their sin under the carpet, to wipe their mouth after biting adultery like in the, the woman in Proverbs, and then say, I didn't do it. Jesus also, therefore, adds a warning. And I want you to apply to everything I've said so far, that warning. Unless you risk to distort or manipulate the true meaning of this story. And remember, that because of ancient evidence, we must take this story with a grain of salt. But Jesus never, never in this story is implying that adultery is not worthy of condemnation. He's not condoning her. He's not ignoring her sin. It was so serious that he brought the death of the one who will die in her place. He sends her away with these solemn words of warning. Just as he did previously. You remember in chapter 5. What did he say in chapter 5 to the paralytic? Go and sin no more. Lest something worse happen to you. And here we have the same word. Go and sin no more. And, and literally that means from now on. From this very moment on. Don't commit adultery again. No longer. In other words, I'm not asking you to try to do better from now on. And if that happens again, oops, it's okay. Because look, I'm merciful. No, live your life of sin behind you forever. Kill sin or it will kill you. We don't know if she did, by the way. We hope she did. As the hymn, There is a Fountain says. What does it, There is a Fountain says? There's that stanza that comes from this text. Till the ransomed church of God be saved to sin no more. We have to let the implications of this word sink into our hearts. The woman was called to sin no more in this earth, okay? From that instant till all the end of her life. It's not something in the future in heaven. 
or in purgatory, worst of all. Thomas Watson says this, Mercy is not for them that sin and fear not. Mercy is for them that fear and sin not. See that? That here in this story, obviously, on the one hand, yes, it's one of the greatest pictures of the compassion and mercy of Jesus. Absolutely. That he defends the weak, that he's friends of sinners, that there is room in the kingdom of God for every kind of sinners, even adulterers. However, they turn away from such sin. They turn away from such lifestyle. And they embrace now by genuine faith the Lord Jesus. And genuine means not two-faced, not double standard faith, not flip-coined, but genuine. And friend, no matter what sin you might have committed, no matter the shame you have felt for that sin, in the sight of the, the judging world, if you turn to Jesus Christ, yes, He is willing to have mercy on you, just like He did with this woman. However, it becomes true if you truly repent, that you resolve to sin no more. And in that case, you, you, you then, when this is in place, you confidently know that Jesus forgives you. Totally. Some, however, like the self-righteous good son in the prodigal son story, have difficulty accepting the forgiveness of God. Why? Because it robs them of their pride. Look, I was here since forever. I've served you. I've been part of this forever. And this guy who comes five minutes ago, and however he's repenting, unlike me, you let him in. See, the problem is robbing the pride of the Pharisees. They have difficulty accepting the true nature of forgiveness because they do not have it themselves. But remember, please, remember the last words of our text. Sin no more. If she would have kept in her sin, if she would have continued to sin, then I'm telling you the promise of forgiveness through the cross would have just remained void. That's why a faith without repentance nullifies the genuine nature of the profession of faith. That the call of repentance and faith is like a two sides of one coin. You don't get into the jackpot with, without both sides. They go hand in hand with the promise of forgiveness. It begins repentance with changing your mind about sin. But it's far more than changing your mind about sins. It involves you humble yourself. You now have sorrow for sin. You have grief for having committed sin toward God. And like here, there's a turning away from that sin which is accompanied by sincere endeavors. And you now rely, rely on the grace and, uh, and help of the Holy Spirit. Realize that you cannot produce repentance from within you. So you cry for God to grant you repentance by His grace, so that it may be genuine, so that it may be total. And repentance, therefore, is more than an alcoholic going to therapy and quitting drinking. As good as that is, friend, that is missing the mark of true change, complete change. In every truly repentant believer, there's a before and an after. Look, I, 10 years ago, 11 years ago, the Lord called me and it's like, my life before was that. I was a slave of sin. My life afterwards, I'm a slave of righteousness. Was I perfect afterwards? No, but I'm a slave of righteousness. And if there's sin, I turn away from it. There's just a, a whole different nature in you. That is what God is looking for. So that now... God grants you this sorrow for sin and resolution to live in humble and holy obedience to the commandment of God contained in the Word of God. It requires God's grace, yes, but God still summons you to repent in His Word to the point that failing in that point nullifies everything else about you. You don't believe that? Ezekiel 33 verse 12, 
says this, The righteousness of the righteous man shall not deliver him in the day of his transgression. As for the wickedness of the wicked, he shall not fall because of it in the day that he turns from his wickedness. Nor shall the righteous be able to live because of his righteousness in the day that he sins. In other words, we cannot even presume to be saved if our profession of faith is not accompanied and followed by genuine repentance. And in the context of Ezekiel, two verses after, verse 15, there's some example. You restore the pledge. You give back what's stolen. You walk in the statutes of the Lord without committing iniquity. Just like in the case of this woman. It meant for her, I no longer walk in, I give up adultery altogether. And let me say something on, on a danger here. Because I know as a culture, we have this understanding of salvation that is flawed by what is called the altar calls. Okay? Something that has been going on for centuries. I know we watched the movie, Brother Sheffy, last uh, Friday. And it's a very beautiful movie, but there's one thing that I want you to be discerning. This issue of altar call started in the Second Great Awakenings in America. And then it grew in the 20th century with Billy Graham. And today, even more, you get to hear churches where a certain time in the service, they put some music, they fade lights, the people come down to the aisle, they pray the sinner prayer, and they announce them, oh, without question, this person is converted. Per perhaps they even baptize them on the spot. I want to warn you that this is manipulation, this is deceptive, and it's nothing short of what was happening in the Reformation when they were giving indulgences. A piece of paper. Congratulations, your sins are forgiven by this piece of paper. Regardless of your, the first point of Luther is like, in, in the 95 Thesis, repentance is a daily throughout the life of the, of the Christian. And that was missing in this piece of paper. Congratulations! Oh yes, I, I went down the aisle. Oh yes, I, 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 I'm accepted Jesus. Now my entire life is, God is foreign into me. I have not repented of my sin. I have not truly understood what that entails. And millions of souls here in the South particularly, once in their life went down the altar, accepted Jesus in their heart, they never show any genuine fruit of repentance. They didn't go and sin no more like in the story. And this is so unbiblical. I mean, the healthy biblical pattern is that in the church, particularly the elders, help discern whether a person is a true believer. There's a waiting time to make sure he or she is truly saved. There is discipleship. There's consideration whether there's true repentance of sin. I'm telling you, if we don't do that, pastors in particular, me who stand here, I will have to tremble on judgment day for the responsibility of having misled countless souls. And I don't want them in my shoulder. Think about countless of churches. They build their entire ministries on the dry bones of unconverted church members. And so the reason we want to be serious about this, the principle of regenerate church members is because we want to avoid the danger. This is about the souls. This is not about social acceptance. This is about maintaining clear consciences before God. That we respond to this imperative command of Jesus. We go and sin no more. Which doesn't mean perfection, friends. But it does unquestionably involve repentance. Yes, Jesus stands ready to forgive any sin in your life. But you must confess it. You must turn away from it. That is still demanded by God. So the call for you this morning is to go home and sin no more. 
to break with sin, forsake sin, and I'm not asking you to feel bad about sin, to talk about sin, to hope that it will be gone, but to act and to pray the Lord Jesus that His grace will make that a reality in your life for the good of everyone around you and yourself. Until there's this stop of quitting, of doing evil and turning away from sin, it's like... It's not genuine. And that's through righteousness, friends, not self-righteousness. That's why you need a changed heart. You need a, a really a transplant, a heart transplant. God grants us this grace of repentance, this godly sorrows, this hate for, for and disgust for sin that leads, like in the woman caught in adultery, to sin no more. So what do we make of this peculiar encounter of Jesus with the woman caught in adultery? I want to end here by not wanting to read too much out of a story, which, as I said, is not so strongly attested in the early versions of the Gospel of John. What, what I said to you, however, is that it likely took place. And so we want to still get some lessons out of it. And the fact that it took place calls us to make sure that our understanding and our framing of Jesus is in step with the story. I mean, this woman came at a stone throw from death. And the paradox here I want you to see in the story is this. That the religious devout Pharisees will face eternal death. And yet an adulterous woman goes to heaven because she actually does what the Pharisees are failing to do. She actually turns from their sin and receives forgiveness. So let this be a lesson for us. We must beware of any self-righteousness in us, especially if it blinds us to the mercy of God to our sinners. That we are all imperfect, that we are all coming with our baggage of sin and we find ourselves trifling with the lawmaker. That's what the Pharisees are doing. Who is able to, one word, to stop us right there and expose our guilty conscience. So let us remember that just as Jesus is a friend of sinners, our attitude towards sinners needs to be remaining a fellow sinner. That is true. We are fellow sinners. And that we come at this crossroad of shame. And whenever we encounter people in this crossroad of shame, we bring the gospel. We say, friend, you can find forgiveness and freedom from this slavery of sin. You can find freedom from this shame. Friends, it's not the one who exalts himself in his own righteousness who receives mercy. It is not the one who thinks he or she is better off than others. No, it's the one who rightly understands his guilt before God. And is caught in the shame of sin. Aware of the ugliness of sin. And has nothing to offer. Nothing to self-justify himself. But simply he reaches out to receive the hand of Jesus. And there true change begins. That no matter how low, no matter how base sin has led that person, Christ can forgive you. He's a merciful God. That is the sense in which love fulfilled the law. In the sense that Christ and His love ultimately in your place has accomplished what the law can do by itself. But remember, just because the Pharisees are misusing the law, it doesn't mean that Jesus is done away with the law. Or is breaking the law here. There's still a price for sin. Immense price for sin. So that the God of the universe had to be incarnate and go and pay for that sin on the cross. The question here, friend, for you is this. Whether Jesus took the stones or you will be stoned and the stones will come on your shoulder when you will one day appear before God. Therefore, justice and mercy are not in, in contradiction. They're inseparable. Go in hand in hand. Even in the story. That mercy without justice is cruel, friend. 
And never in a million lifetimes can a truly forgiven sinner like the adulterous woman proceed as usual without this radical change and repentance. So Jesus is calling you and I, just like he called this woman, to forsake sin, to be holy as he is holy. And none of that is diminished in the story. In fact, it is reinforced. The only problem is when we pursue one against the other, grace and holiness. Truth and love. And you realize when you put them together, what God has joined together, let no man separate. That you come and you see the perfect marrying of the two with the Savior, Jesus Christ. And yes, He removes all your shames. And you turn around from your darkness. You rely only on the true gospel of Christ. And what is the old gospel of Christ is summarized in this hymn. This old hymn that says, There is no sin that I have done that has such height and breadth it can't be washed in Jesus' blood or covered by His death. There is no spot that still remains, no cause to hide my face. For He has stooped to wash me clean and covered me with grace. Because where sin abounds, grace much more abounds. Let us pray.